Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Let me start by apologizing for my mistake last week. I actually thought that we were covering the rest of 1 Corinthians. So I kind of touched on everything to the end of 1 Corinthians, and then this week, this is not reading the details or the, the directions. I saw that we actually were saving chapters 14 through 16 for this week. So that gives me a chance to go back and talk a little more in depth about some of the things from last week. And that's fun. So I hope that's not too confusing that last week I actually went further than the curriculum called for. And this week, I'm uh, just going to go and do a little bit of a deeper dive. Let's start with chapter 14 in Corinthians we talked about the charity part at the beginning. Really important. I will say just something quickly here. That charity is vastly misunderstood by many of the members of the church. In a benevolent intent, I think we believe that charity is always giving. It's always turning the other cheek, being patient, long-suffering, kind. Does it include those things? Yes, it does. Is it more than that? Yes, it is. And being only tuned in to the giving and the tolerant side of charity can make us chronic victims. The world is getting more dangerous, brothers and sisters. I think I've mentioned this before, but several years in to the time that I've been a counselor, my kids (laughs) pointed out to me that, Mom, your stories are getting worse. And that was over a decade ago that they mentioned that. Maybe yeah, I don't know, 15 years or more ago. And I would say they've taken another dip, meaning that just as prophesied, Satan is having his last chance to corrupt the minds and the hearts and the bodies of the people who are the children of God. And he has his minions working with them, and they are coming at us from every side. So if all we know how to do is turn the other cheek, it's not enough. I'm not suggesting that we retaliate. Here we have our prophet, President Nelson, telling us to be peacemakers. And that is so important that we not lose sight of God's desire that we be a peculiar people and that we don't become short-tempered or you know people with a short fuse or aggressive or nasty in any venue, certainly not at home, but not on social media and not in public or not with our friends, that we do need to be kind. We do need to be genuinely trying to do what Jesus would do. But that is more than just turning the other cheek. I'd invite you to consider what we read earlier this year in the Gospels about the life and ministry of Christ and see how he took a stand. Now, I'm not going to get into this too much right here. This is what I'm writing about in my book on boundaries. I hope this doesn't sound like too much of a tease because it is taking me a while to find the time to move forward on that manuscript. There's a lot written, more to do. I'm eager to get to it, but we have had some... (laughs) commotion in our lives lately with this basement flood and the upstairs remodel. So anyway, we're just in an interesting time and I don't have as much flex time as I would like, but I am working on it and it's coming. So I will explain that all in the book about how to understand charity in a way that allows us to become non-victim Christians. I have talked about this before. 
encourage you to, if you want more information on this, to go back and listen to the DNC episode on section 98. And I talk quite a bit about this non-victim Christian idea. And there will be more to come when I'm able to get that manuscript done and prepare it and get it ready for distribution. Excited for that time. Thanks for your patience with all of those things. Anyway, let's go on and look at, in the next page, also 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Now, this is really important. And he's coming at it from having talked about spiritual gifts, right? And he talks about many of these wonderful gifts that one has one and one has another. But then he says, it's not about confusion. And he speaks about, specifically, the gift of tongues. Look at verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But verse 28, if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, why? Maybe you're aware that in some Pentecostal churches, one of the signs of the Spirit that people manifest when they are in sort of a spiritual frenzy is to speak in tongues, and yet they're nonsensical sounds. Nobody understands what they're saying. And sometimes this is seen as a manifestation of great spiritual power. But God is making it clear, like, what would be the purpose for somebody to speak in tongues, but nobody can interpret? And if there isn't anybody there to interpret, then let him keep his silence. And why? Well, that's the explanation that's coming here in a moment in verse 33 that we just read. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And it would be pretty confusing if God is making manifestations and saying things that are supposed to be, you know, of the Spirit or wonderful or, you know, it's a prophesying or something like that, and nobody can understand it. So it is not the gift that is sometimes seen or heard or talked about or written about in Pentecostal churches where somebody in a frenzy gets up and speaks things that are unable to be understood, that they're just unable to be interpreted. It is about somebody being able to hear so that there is a reason for the gift. Now, where is the greatest manifestation of this particular spiritual gift in the world today? In our missionary program. And how many times have we heard missionaries testify of how they did their diligent study, and some of them, yes, have more of a natural gift than others, perhaps, of one of these spiritual gifts, and they can learn a language more quickly or with more facility. Nevertheless, so many of them are able to perform at a level that is greater than they would have ever thought. And it is a, a pretty rapid <laughs> turnaround when you think about what we do in the MTCs around the world, where we send these people in for just a very few weeks, relatively speaking, to learn an entire language that might be completely new to them the day they walk in the MTC. So what a wonderful way to see that. Now, I'm going to take another view of this verse about how God is not an author of confusion and review something that I talked about in the very first podcast that I was ever a part of. 
and it was the Follow Him podcast, section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants year, so a couple of years ago. And it's because of that guest spot that I ended up doing my own podcast. (laughs) We'll see if that's a good thing or not in the long haul. But anyway, I was surprised that I ended up doing my own podcast. I actually was very happy to be a guest there. I love to talk about the scriptures. I love to talk about application. So I was pretty excited and I had fun preparing and I went for the recording. Well, actually, at that time, they were coming to my home to set up a camera and so on. And the others were in different places. Now they have more of a little studio set up where you go to record. At any rate, I was about to sit down and get ready for the, you know, logging in so that we could start recording when I couldn't find my triple combination that I had been using to study and prepare. And so (laughs) we have a big overgrown Irish golden doodle named Mick. Sometimes he loves to take things outside. He's better now than he used to be. But as a younger dog, he used to have a whole pile of things that were under a tree, not buried, not hidden, but just under a tree in the yard. And if you couldn't find something in the house, it was probably in Mick's room. And no kidding. I mean, it was pretty bad for a while. And he took lots of stuff and some of it got ruined anyway. That day he had taken my Doctrine and Covenants and he had, well, my whole triple And he had taken it outside, and when I went to retrieve it, you know, some of the pages of Section 50 were torn, so (laughs) I was like, wow, the dog literally ate my homework this time. But I was able to carry on, and my husband did a really amazing job of repair on some of these pages so that they are usable again. I guess I could break down and start again, but I really do love these scriptures that I've used for quite a while. Let's look at section 50 and see if we can connect that to what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 14.33 about confusion. Okay, I'm going to start with, well, let's have fun with it and go back to verse 4. I, the Lord, have looked upon you and have seen abominations in the church that profess my name. Sorry, I'm going to go back even to the heading of section 50 that says... The prophet states that some of the elders did not understand the manifestations of different spirits abroad in the earth, and that this revelation was given in response to his special inquiry on the matter. So-called spiritual phenomena were not uncommon among the members, some of whom claimed to be receiving visions and revelations. And we know that God has always talked about the gifts of the Spirit that always attend the true church. So some of the members, and fairly in a common way, because it was not uncommon for them to have some of these spiritual moments and then share them, and yet they were not consistent. So sometimes somebody would feel and share that they had received direction on a certain subject, and then somebody else would get something different, and it was different from what Joseph Smith was teaching. And so there was a lot of confusion. And what have we just read? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is consistent. He's not all over the place. He is consistent. He's not going to say one thing to one and one thing to another. That would be confusing. So he starts out in saying that we have problems in the church. There are abominations in the church. But blessed are they, this is verse 5, who are faithful and endure, whether in life or in death, for they shall inherit eternal life. But woe unto them that are deceivers and hypocrites. For thus saith the Lord, I will bring them to judgment. In other words, they're not going to get away with it. 
This is something that God reminds us of very regularly, that there is a record being kept in heaven and nobody gets away with anything and neither do we. So we are accountable to God for what we choose as our others. People get away with even murder in this life and all other kinds of heinous acts of evil and sin. And they may not be brought to justice in this mortal sphere, but that doesn't mean they're going to get away with it. And God is reminding us of that again here in section 50. I will bring them to judgment. Verse 7, Behold, verily I say unto you, there are hypocrites among you who have deceived some, which has given the adversary power, but behold, such shall be reclaimed. Now notice it's among us. It's in the church. So he's talking about some of the sophistry that we've been discussing here and there. Some of the very cleverly packaged, mingled with scripture ideas that are not truth, but they are paraded as if they are true, and they are targeting members of the church in a seeming effort to strengthen the church and to help the church, and yet they are pulling people away from the truth. Some of them not by error, some because they are hypocrites, and they are doing Satan's work within our church. We need to be critical thinkers, right? And we need to use that critical thinking that we've been talking about also to help us beware of when people are generating confusion rather than peace in what they're sharing. And anytime it speaks against revealed doctrine, anytime it speaks against the prophets and what the prophets are teaching or what the scriptures are teaching, it generates confusion and it is false. And it has a false note to it if we learn to hear that. Anyway, this is important. Verse 8 but the hypocrites shall be detected and shall be cut off either in life or in death, even as I will. Again, justice doesn't come until the end. We've got to figure that out, brothers and sisters. I've been saying this for a long time, and let me say it now because I don't think I've said it in the podcast. Forgive me if it's a repeat. Life is kind of like a Mission Impossible movie. It's like, <laughs> you know, Tom Cruise and his team there, they identify some bad guy. And they spend the entire two hours-ish trying to catch the bad guy and stop him from doing these world-shattering things or, you know, going to destroy the whole system and bring it down anyway. What do they do? They chase them. They try to catch them. They try to, you know, stop them, maybe kill them. But every time, they're a day late and a dollar short. Every single time. They're almost, almost going to get him, and then the bad guy gets away. Or the bad guy has an unknown escape route. Or the bad guy kills one of the good guys and gets away. Anyway, this happens throughout the movie. And then you get to the end and the good guys win. And I think, why don't we realize that we're living in that kind of world? Evil can flourish. It's having its heyday. And there are a lot of people who have succumbed to the dark side. And yet, in the end... It will be just. Christ will come and he will subdue all enemies under his feet. Whether in life or in death, those people will face accountability. The ones who are hurtful and destructive or trying to sell confusion instead of peace. So we got to hang in there, brothers and sisters. We've got to be steadfast. We need to be able to hold to God and hold to his truth. That is where ultimate peace comes. It doesn't mean that it will stop the tumult 
of the last days. That has already been written. It is a prophecy that will be fulfilled. It's being fulfilled as we speak, and it will continue to be wild and crazy until the Savior comes and subdues all enemies under his feet. But that will come. Don't bet against him. Don't give up. Don't think he doesn't love us just because we're in a Mission Impossible movie where the bad guys get away and get away and get away with it and get away with it and get away with this too. At the end, it will all be made right. And included in that justice will be the merciful restoration part of the atonement that heals our wounds, that corrects injustice and makes it right. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it because it works and it will work in a supernal way. And it will heal all wounds and dry all tears. It will put everything to rights for those who have kept their eyes single to Christ and have not been deceived by even this difficult situation that allows evil to flourish amongst even the church members themselves. Finishing verse 8, And woe unto them who are cut off from my church, for the same are overcome of the world. And again, that might be in this life, it might be after this life that they're cut off from God's kingdom. Wherefore, let every man beware lest he do that which is not in truth and righteousness before me. That's verse 9, and that's basically what I just said. Nobody's getting away with it, including me. So I need to make sure, as do we all, that we try to be diligent in acting in truth and righteousness before the Lord. Then, I love this. This section has been one of my favorites forever, and that's saying a lot. I do have lots of favorites in the DNC. Here's one of them. Verse 10, Now come, saith the Lord, by the Spirit and the elders of his church, and let us reason together that ye may understand. As you know, I talk a lot about understanding, how important it is to God that we understand and help our children understand. Not just behave because they've been taught the practice, but that they understand the principles that undergird all God's commandments and all of the standards of the church. But he's talking here about reasoning so that we can understand. Verse 11, let us reason even as a man reasoneth one with another face to face. Verse 12, now when a man reasoneth, he is understood of man because he reasoneth as a man. Even so will I, the Lord, reason with you that you may understand. Verse 13, wherefore I, the Lord, ask you this question, unto what were ye ordained? <laughs> so he's like, there's a little bit of Socratic method here, you know, where you ask questions of the student and get the student to think and come up with the answers. And yet the Lord's going to help us out here because he gives the answer himself. But I love the question. Like, let's review, Joseph, unto what were ye ordained? Like, what started this whole restoration in the first place? Why did I call you to be the prophet of the restoration? And in verse 14, the answer, to preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. Like, this is all about bringing light, truth, and intelligence to the earth in the restoration in these latter days, as in every dispensation of time throughout mortal history, where God has in his generosity dispensed truth and given people a chance to decide if they would receive it or how much of it they would receive. And you know that in section 93, we look at that beautiful definition. Let me turn a few pages here and read it. 
section 93, verse 24. Truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. Wow. Strong, beautiful statement there about truth being things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. It's reality. It's the absolute reality that God is giving us so that we are not deceived by all the voices and all the seductions that are around us. It's truth. So here he says to Joseph Smith, and back to section 50, that you were ordained to preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. And then, verse 15, received ye spirits which ye could not understand, and received them to be of God? And in this ye are justified? Question mark. He ends with a question mark because he's like, don't go there. Like, are you kidding? You think you're justified? In getting confusing manifestations that people are talking about and saying they had a vision or a dream or a you know voice or whatever, and that they are all different, and they are contrary to what I'm giving you, Joseph, the prophet of the restoration, and they don't match up. And you think they're coming from me? I don't roll that way. That is not how I work. I am not the author of confusion. That's back to Paul now in 1 Corinthians 14. I am not the author of confusion, but of peace. There is a consistency, a logical coherence to the truth. It fits together. As you have noticed, this is why I can go from one thing to another in a heartbeat. (laughs) And then I go to the next. Because it's all circumscribed into one great whole. Because it is internally consistent. It's coherent. It's all connected. And this truth helps to magnify that one. And that truth helps us understand this one. It continues in this one great round where all truth, all understanding of things as they really are, things as they really were, and things as they really are to come helps us understand how to live right now. And this is his gift. This is his great gift to his believers, to people who enter and continue on the covenant path, that we can receive truth. Now, again, we've talked about two weeks ago that we talked about how the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Can you imagine having a beacon of truth for our children, for ourselves? It's extraordinary, the gift that God wants to give if we will receive it. Now we're going to jump ahead in section 50 of the DNC to verse 21. Therefore, why is it that ye cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the spirit of truth receiveth it as it is preached by the spirit of truth? This is one of the great gifts that we have access to as members of the church because the Holy Ghost can tell us the truth of all things. And it confirm, it can and does confirm our understanding and give us a witness of truth if we will seek it diligently. Now, we do have to use our minds. And this is why we talk about things like being rational and using critical thinking and studying it out in our minds. Because God does expect us to perform that work before he takes over and gives us that wonderful witness and expands our understanding and opens up our spiritual eyes to things we could never have learned on our own. 
but he does want us to pedal so that he can steer. Or as a client told me once, God can't steer a parked car. So he does want us to do the work of study. We could sit back and say like, yeah, I'll just go to the temple more and I'll just hope that God gets through my, you know, thick skull. (laughs) But no, although going to the temple is a wonderful thing and keep going, (laughs) please keep going. We do learn a lot. It is a house of learning, right? And house of the Lord. Much learning can happen in the temple, but we do need to think. We need to be rational. And this is one of the great things I love about God. I mean, there are so many things to love about God, but this is one of them, that he is rational and that he expects us to be rational. I'm going to go on a little bit longer in section 50. Wherefore, this is verse 22, he that preaches and he that receiveth understand one another. There it is again. They need to understand. We need to understand. And both are edified and rejoice together. Verse 23, And that which doth not edify is not of God. It is darkness. Now here's another favorite verse, quoted all the time. Verse 24, that which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Isn't that a beautiful image and a beautiful understanding that can come to us? This is how God works. If we receive the light and continue in God. Now, what does it mean to continue in God? It means to be obedient to the light that we've received. So if we are sitting in general conference or sacrament meeting or Sunday school, or we're reading our own scriptures or listening to a conference talk, or we're in the temple and we get a prompting that is a positive prompting and it is inherently consistent internally consistent with the other principles of the gospel. And that is, again, not that difficult, but a lot of people skip this part where they don't check it for consistency with God's other revealed word. So they get some idea and think like, oh, you know, I guess I should spend more money than I live on and then I can be happy. And you're like, wait, no, (laughs) no, it's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what Christ taught. It's not what our prophets teach. They always remind us to be prudent stewards to live on less than we earn, to save money, you know, not be in debt, all those things. And if we have these ideas, sometimes people will think that they're inspired. Oh, I, I spoke to a couple once where that was one of the questions that came up. They were not in a good place. And there was a lot of tension and injury that had happened over the years of their marriage. And they both wanted to ask this question about, well, what happens if one of us gets a prompting and the other one gets a prompting, and yet the partner doesn't acknowledge or show willingness to follow the prompting? And this is what happens in a church where we appropriately emphasize living by the Spirit and receiving the revelation. We want to hear Him. We want to receive light But what if it completely disagrees with your partner in marriage, like your husband or your wife? What if it just doesn't fit? Well, guess what? One of you is wrong. Maybe you're both wrong. That's possible too. And what is our method of addressing that? We better go back to the drawing board. We better be rational. And we better see if it's consistent with other revealed truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what we do. One of us is off. Now, it might not be that either of you is bad or, you know, that maybe neither at all has evil intent, but we're still going about it wrong if we're not checking our reason and saying, did we pull out the spreadsheet? Did we make a list of pros and cons? And did we talk about it in a non-contentious way? Or did we just start to fight? Because if we really want to do things by the Spirit in our marriages, we need to be inspired by the same source, because God is not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. And if we're fighting about our inspiration, we're doing it wrong. That shouldn't be too hard to figure out. But sometimes we need to be reminded. And then I always go back to section 121, which is a wonderful treatment on relationships, where God says that no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, or I would add, by virtue of being right. So sisters, even if we are correct in our thinking, if we try to force our partners to agree with us, that's not right. And brethren, if you think you're right, and you're pretty sure you're right, and you could be, you could be correct. But if you say, okay, well, you know, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who holds the priesthood, so you're going to do it my way. Now you're wrong. Because no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. And again, or by virtue of being right. And then he tells us how, only by persuasion. And you see that persuasion is a rational process. To persuade somebody, you have to make a coherent and persuasive argument. And when I say argument here, I don't mean a fight. I mean reasoning. We have to present some coherent reasoning that shows how we arrived to that conclusion. And yes, hopefully we did that with the Spirit, praying about it, asking for light and truth as we go through our process of studying it out, and that we can present that to our husband or wife and say, this is why I think this way. And I do feel the confirmation of the Spirit, but I realize that both of us are feeling that. So (laughs) sometimes, where is that coming from? It comes from the natural man. Notice, Satan is the master counterfeiter. We've talked about this time and time again. He doesn't come up with new ideas. He takes God's ideas and he creates a counterfeit. This is one of the great and dangerous examples of where Satan is a master counterfeiter. He takes this idea of inspiration and a spiritual prompting, which is, as Joseph Smith is reminded, to teach the truth by the Spirit. It's not the author of confusion. It's the author of peace. So that is God's method that we study it out and then get a confirming witness of the Spirit and new promptings as needed if we seek them and are worthy to receive them and diligent to act on them. That's the continue in God part from section 50. But then Satan's counterfeit is our gut feeling. Now, uh, Sometimes we describe the spirit as a gut feeling, so it's not about language. I'm not going to bicker about the semantics or our use of language to describe what's happening, because certainly there is an emotional component to the spirit. We can feel the spirit. We can feel inspired. You know, a good talk, wonderful music, reading the scriptures, we feel that. And God works through that, but Satan's counterfeit is that those feelings don't line up with reason, and it's just thinking with our guts, as my mother used to say, and not doing the reasoning part at all. And then insisting that we're inspired because it was a feeling. 
Now, did that feeling come from God? No, it came from the natural man that has desires, appetites, and passions that can easily be cloaked by spiritual promptings if we choose to go down that path of spiritual abuse. And brothers and sisters, this is spiritual abuse. If we are beating up our partner, our husband, or our wife and saying, but you're not doing what I said because I'm inspired and you're not, that's not right. Because no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood or by virtue of being right, only by persuasion. And that is a process of reasoning. It's a process of thinking, of looking at the facts, of studying it out and showing here, this is why I think the way I do. And then being willing to give equal time to our husband or wife and ask them to explain their reasoning and say, can you help me understand where you're coming from? Why you feel that this would be the right avenue to pursue or the right decision to make? And as they're able to talk, we do that classic reflective listening. Check it out online if you don't know what I'm talking about. But it's a really important skill in every relationship. Very important for parents also in doing this with children. It's really great in the workplace. People who can listen reflectively really understand better. And others feel understood. And we save ourselves a lot of wasted time and grief if we listen well. So here's another way to practice. I know tensions can be high. In any of those relationships, whether it's the workplace, family, friends, but if we listen better, it's an incredible skill and it really helps us get better able to persuade. We're able to speak and we're able to listen and everybody gets their chance to be understood. And if that takes time, so be it. It will take some time. As we get better at it, it is quicker. Like any other skill, the more you practice, the better you get at it. And that's a pretty wonderful thing because then we just naturally go into listening mode and we you know, may ask clarifying questions, which are important. We don't make people an offender for a word. As Isaiah says, we've talked about that before, where you can take one word or phrase and never forget it and beat the other person up with it. But you said this, even if they didn't mean it, because in these very tender areas of decision-making and problem-solving, sometimes we're not sure how to articulate exactly what we are feeling or thinking, and our partner can either help us get better at that by not making this an offender for a word, but instead asking clarifying questions, doing the reflective listening, so that the first person can say, oh yeah, well, what I really meant was this, or I think, yeah, that part is right, but it's more like this. Anyway, that sounding board principle comes into play, very important in problem solving, particularly in marriage. And then persuasion, I would suggest, as I have before, includes all the other terms that God adds after the word persuasion. So think about those for a moment as components of persuasion. What's the next one? Right after persuasion, what does he say? How about you can come up with it? Long suffering. (laughs) It's not, not our favorite term in scripture, is it? But there it is persuasion by long suffering. I've mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again. I had a client who said, there are only two things I don't like about long suffering. One is that it's long and the other is that it involves suffering. (laughs) Can't disagree with that. Long suffering is not our favorite quality. And yet it's part of the qualities of Christ. And if we desire to be like him, we got to take our turns at becoming more patient and more willing to take the time that's necessary to communicate effectively. 
It takes time to persuade because what we're talking about is actually changing somebody else's mind. That's not going to happen overnight. People have to sleep on it, so to speak, and it might take weeks of sleeping on it before they are able to kind of pull those ideas that you've shared together and think about it or the reverse that we're able to chew on it and think about it and pray about it and consider it and come to a place where like, yeah, I didn't think this way before, but I'm starting to see that this is a good thing. That takes time. So there's got to be long suffering by gentleness. Is it a surprise to think that gentleness has to be a part of persuasion? And meekness, appropriately constrained power or appropriately restrained power, meaning there's power in being right, but we need to restrain it so that we don't bombard people. This is also for our children that we don't beat them up or preach to them all the time. We don't talk them to death. And as you might suppose, I had to be very mindful of that as a mother (laughs) because I can talk. I can talk. But I really tried to be careful that it wasn't this just diatribe or just this big preachy thing where, you know, the kids are just like, okay, and then they tune out, which is, of course is what would happen. And that could happen in our marriages too. I know that sadly I've talked to many people over the years who in marriage, you know, their partner gets going and won't quit and won't really allow for any back and forth, but just goes on and on and on in a kind of abusive way because they are just bombarding this person. And especially if they start throwing in scripture as if that's the way God wants us to use scripture. That is spiritual abuse. It's not the desire of God. He's talking about gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned. And of course, let's not forget the first term, long suffering. It's not going to happen in one session because I've just talked you to death. And I'm demanding your compliance or your agreement. That is completely and diametrically opposed to God's way. That's Satan's way. Satan wants to force. He wants to compel. He wants to insist or bribe or blackmail or leverage. Not Christ. Going on. Love unfeigned, of course. Could talk about that for a while. Let's go on, though. By kindness. That has to be a part of our persuasion. And pure knowledge. Meaning we are sharing reason. We're sharing ideas. We're being logical. We're talking about internal consistency with the principles that have been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ in this dispensation and in every dispensation. Pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy. Well, that would be important, wouldn't it? That if we're campaigning for one thing and doing another, forget the persuasion. We all know that people... As they say, you know, what you're doing is shouting so loudly in my ears that I can't even hear what you're saying. And our children are so quick to pick up on hypocrisy. So quick. And it speaks to them in really confusing and terrible ways as they're trying to figure out the world without hypocrisy and without guile, which sometimes I talk about a little bit more. But today I'm just going to cut to the chase and say that I think without guile, and this was something that one of my sons, Graydon, picked up on once in one of my classes and said, I think that means don't score keep. Don't keep track of whose idea ends up being acted upon. Because that can ruin the whole thing of persuasion, the whole process of persuasion. If once maybe our partner is persuaded to our way of thinking, and we start to move forward together in that avenue, then if we say, well, you know, that was my idea, or you should have just known I was going to be right anyway, or, you know, 
I'm glad you finally came around to seeing it my way. You <laughs> see how that just sinks that fragile ship that we had going together? And it kind of ruins the persuasion because I'm going to keep score. I'm going to keep score and I'm going to tell you that I'm right more often than you're right or whatever. Not okay. It's not okay. This is about being on the same side and joining with others to try to come to the truth, not duking it out, not having a big fight over it or you know, weeks of silent treatment or whatever. It's about like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Do we want our marriage to move forward? Do we want our parent-child relationship to move forward and turn into influence, which can be eternal? Do we have a collaborative relationship with our coworkers, with our employees or employers or neighbors, or the people that we work with in a church calling? Persuasion, brothers and sisters. And it's all about reason. Do you have a defensible strategy? Notice that in our world, And this has been talked about in a lot of different news stories and interviews and commentators who have said that what happens too often is when people cannot come up with a defensible argument for their position, let's say a political position or economic position or any kind of strategy in the broader society, if they cannot come up with a defensible, persuadable argument, persuasive argument, let me say, what do they do? They name call. They start calling people names or racists or you know homophobes, transphobes, whatever. And that is not reasoning. There's no chance for persuasion there. You have drawn the lines of battle and now you're just slugging at each other. This is this is never God's way. And the spirit flees from us and will not stay in a place of contention. So if we're fighting with people, and I realize that that is a part of family life sometimes, that, you know, we default to that natural man activity, but let us correct it. We can correct it, brothers and sisters. We can learn to persuade. Practice it. Get better at it. Apologize when we mess up and go back again and try again to do it with the Spirit and without contention. That is more and more necessary in this world. And you see wonderful examples. Sometimes we'll hear them in conference speeches or, you know, little vignettes that the church puts out or whatever about people who have very different views that are persuaded to stop being antagonistic toward the church and sometimes even persuaded to join the church. But even if it just lowers the antagonism, isn't that wonderful? And that can happen because of this kind of activity, this goal of persuading rather than attacking, fighting, criticizing, impugning, or bombarding. And which one is the rational way? So this is something, again, that I talk about frequently. I talked about this with my kids growing up all the time. I talked about this with my clients. I talked to myself about it because when things start to pile up, it's like, okay, Let's get rational. Let's think our way through this. Let's use reason and find that internal consistency with God's revealed word. Okay, here's an example that I gave in that podcast. If you're interested, that was the one with Hank Smith and John, by the way, back in the DNC year, section 50, which I've just quoted from a lot. And there will be a lot of overlap, but you know, those discussions always have a unique flavor. So if you're interested, go back and maybe listen to some of that. But I did tell this story, I remember, in that podcast guest spot. 
had a client many years ago who was a young woman in her mid to later 20s. She was trying to recover from a pretty misspent youth. She had gotten into serious debt and, you know, been out of the church for quite a while and behaved in some pretty (laughs) serious ways that violated the standards of the church. She had been raised in the church, but in her family, you couldn't really tell that they were members. They didn't really try to live the gospel. So she hadn't learned it well and hadn't really been converted very strongly. And as I said, had been out of the church for some time. Anyway, she was living in Utah Valley and had wonderful roommates that were girls that were either working or going to school. They were all active members of the church. They supported each other in keeping the standards, doing good works. They even had apartment prayer or scripture study once in a while together when they could. So she was in a great place. She was working with her bishop to get in full fellowship and trying to get out of debt with a job that she was working anyway. One time she came in for an appointment and she said, I don't know what to do. And I know this is a repeat to some of you, so I apologize, but it's a good example. The question she had was that she said, I have been praying and praying to get an answer for a question that is important, but I can't seem to get an answer. And I just keep praying. And I've talked to my roommates and they just encourage me to keep praying about it. So what's the question? She said, well, I have a great friend from my hometown that I grew up with. And she's like a sister to me. And she's moving to the area. And she needs to have a roommate to share the rent for the place she found. So she knew I was in the area, called me and said, why don't you come? And my lease is coming up. So it would be an easy time to change, you know, to a new place. My roommates have other people that would love to come and take my spot, and they would be fine with that, so I'm not leaving anybody in a lurch. But I don't know what to do because my current situation is so great, but the new situation would be really fun with this friend, and I've been praying about it so long, and I'm not really getting clarity. And I said, well, let me ask you a couple questions. This would be the reasoning part, brothers and sisters. (laughs) This would be the study it out in your mind part, which she apparently, bless her heart, had not really considered or, you know, had not occurred to her to make her pro and con list. I asked, is this friend of yours from your hometown? Is she a member? And she said, well, you know, she used to be, but not so you can tell really anymore. And I said, so she drinks, smokes, does pot? Yeah, she does all those things sometimes. And so does she have guys stay over? Oh, yeah, she has guys stay over. So forgive me, but I did sort of chuckle and I said, well, well, here's a thought. Why don't you stop praying about it and start thinking? I said, actually, the Lord has revealed his opinion on these subjects before. Many times. Brothers and sisters, how often might we end up in a situation like that? Because the world says to follow your heart. And we are in a world that is very emotional and very prone to emotional decision-making, very prone to that intuitive or instinctive or, you know, just automatic response that is coming from emotion instead of, well, does it make sense? Is this consistent with previously revealed doctrine and principles? If I study it out in my mind, Do the consequences look like positive ones or negative ones? I mean, there are trade-off elements to everything, but brothers and sisters, it's not that hard to tell 
good logical decisions from bad emotional decisions. And Satan, the master counterfeiter, wants our experience emotionally to masquerade as the spirit. But if we follow the admonitions of God and we actually use reasoning, we study it out in our mind. And remember, he talks so often about understanding. If we come to a place of rational understanding, of logical understanding, then the spirit can confirm it. The kind of exception that some people want to call on is something like Nephi killing Laban, right? And they say, well, that wasn't rational, or that wasn't, well, actually, it was very rational once he knew the higher principle. But notice how that went down. Nephi, because he was rational and boringly consistent about obeying the voice of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord, sees Laban there helpless and does not think on his own about executing him because that's against the commandments. So, of course, that's not even in his head. And God sends him a very strong message to tell him that he needs to execute Laban so that he can get the breastplates and that all his descendants in the new world for generations can be blessed and have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty big deal. And we know how that was explained, right? Anyway, Nephi then is like, oh, new information. And yes, sometimes the spirit will bring new information or new insight, but it's rational. And that's how God worked with Nephi. Better that one man should perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. That's logical. There's inherent and internal consistency. Because God's business is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And they need information. They need revealed scripture. They need the spirit and the power that can come from studying those words. They needed to maintain their language. Anyway, so many benefits that God had in store for them in that process of giving them an opportunity to work out their salvation and even exaltation if they would choose. And they needed the brass plates. Nephi had rationally, with his brothers, gone and explored other options. They were not working. Laban was going to be incalcitrant and truculent and immovable. So God sets things up so that Nephi can execute Laban. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he didn't ask Laman or Lemuel. And my reasoning here is that Laman and Lemuel would have probably responded with something like, oh, great idea. Where's the sword? I should have thought of that myself. And why? Because they were all over the place. They were not consistent in their obedience. One minute after the angel, they're all repentant, and the next minute they want to kill Nephi again. They are all over the board. That is emotional behavior, emotionally driven behavior, which is volatile that's one way we can see it. We can see it in ourselves. We can see it in our children or other people. Anybody that you're considering marrying or going into business with, if they're up and down and all over the place, you can pretty much make an educated guess that they are making decisions emotionally. Not very safe to ally yourself too closely with people like that. And certainly we don't want to let our children be all over the place. We need to help them become more consistent in their obedience, more able to reason. I was talking to somebody just not long ago where we were talking about disciplining children. And I said, you know, it's not enough to get them to say they're sorry. I mean, that's a good start. 
if they hurt somebody or were disobedient or whatever. But first of all, you want that to be a sincere sounding apology, not just sorry, where we all know that it's not genuine or intended to be. So, you know, the person needs to, whatever the consequence is, sit alone, you know, do this job until you're ready to come and genuinely humble yourself and apologize with sincerity. But then we want them to understand. We don't just want misbehavior to be followed by punishment or some kind of discipline, and then we go on. We want them to learn. That's the root word of discipline, right? It's disciple. It's that someone who is taught, somebody who learns. So we want to talk with them about it so that they gain some internal consistency as they go through life and they realize that, okay, you know, what went wrong here? What is the problem for which you were given a consequence? Why was I not happy with what you did? And have them think about it. We may need to help a little bit depending on the age, of course, but as they grow and become more able to reason, we want to reason with them. What went wrong for you that got you in trouble? And why is that important? And again, we just talked about this a moment ago, we don't want to be preachy or talk their ear off, but we need to teach the principle behind it. Maybe go to the scriptures. Sometimes I used to have the kids, I taught them how to use the topical guide, and I would say, okay, look at the, all these verses on kindness, choose three, and look them up and write the whole verse down, and then come and explain it to me. And maybe even have them share it at dinner, or during scripture reading time, or something with the whole family, so everybody can benefit. Let's look at what God says about this. And let's talk about why it matters and why it's a blessing for each of us if we follow these commandments, if we harness our natural man and we live rationally. Such an important idea. I remember my mom saying once when I was talking to her, and this was after I was married, but I, was, I had identified a hang-up in myself. <laughs> so maybe I'll tell you about that another time or on Patreon. But anyway... I was talking to her about it because I'd realized I had this kind of, you know, glitch and I gained some insight. She asked some good questions and I figured out where it had come from, what in my developing years had uh, kind of developed this problem. So as I was looking at it and thinking like, hmm, well, okay, so now what do I do? And she said, the only thing that makes sense in life is to behave rationally. I must have been in my young 20s when she said that. And it wasn't the first time she had shared that idea because my mother was all about reason and rational thinking. But that one really stands out in my memories of my mom's wise counsel to be rational. And that really helped me. And as I've talked about cognitive behavioral change in the past, again, not leading with emotion, ending with the witness of the spirit that changes our feelings about things, going through that transitional time of discomfort and change, Anyway, if we're waiting to feel better about it, it'll never happen. But if we have reasoned it out, if we understand the principles, and again, teaching our children in this same process to think their way into their behaviors, not to feel their way. The reason they get in trouble is because they are feeling their way. Somebody takes their toy and they hit them or say something mean. Or if they want something that somebody else has, they grab it. That's emotional response instead of reasonable and rational that is based on good principles that helps us to harness the natural man and avoid all kinds of hot stoves in life. You know, this is a pet subject of mine. I could go on for a long time. I have gone on for a long time. I just want to end. Boy, there are other things I thought I was going to get to, but this was fun. So I hope that this 
rings some bells for you and makes some good sense. As I have said, I really appreciate your patience right now as we're in a little bit of commotion here, and it's going to last a few months with the basement flood having happened, but I am going to figure out time to get some of that extra content that I promised so that it can be in the hopper and it can be edited and end up on Patreon. I really do appreciate your patience. I hope not to try it too far. If you're interested, patreon.com forward slash choosing glory. This is what allows me to continue producing the podcast as well as the extra content. With your support, I can keep going for a long time. We can do it, brothers and sisters. Paul talks about those three kingdoms. This is where the idea came of choosing glory for me. That as I learned more from Doctrine and Covenants section 76 about the three kingdoms and the laws that pertain to each of those kingdoms, I realized that every day, according to what behavioral choices we make, we are choosing which glory we will end up in the telestial glory of the stars, the terrestrial, the glory of the moon, or the celestial, the glory of the sun. And we can have all that the Father hath if we desire, but we need to choose it. We need to exercise this amazing gift of agency and choose it day by day in what we think and what we say and what we do, how we sculpt those things to bring them into conformity with the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And as we conform to His image we find less and less confusion, more and more clarity. Truth, light, intelligence brings us peace as we understand better the promises of God. There will be a happy ending. He has declared it to be so, and he is a God of truth, and he does not lie. We can choose glory, brothers and sisters, no matter what those around us choose instead we can choose glory and we can build Zion, which is our task for this day. Think about it. Next time we have General Conference, listen to all of those speeches as if they are aids to building Zion. That's what's going on. And of course, every prophet has invited his people to do that because that is available to us. It must happen before Christ comes, whether we're a part of it or not. And may we all be a part of it. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.